0: Hello and welcome to today's edition of HIV Matters. HIV Matters explores the current issues people living with HIV experience that impact on their quality of life. The podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Croston, Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Nottingham. I have a long history of working in HIV care and will be joined on the podcast by leading professionals and activists in the field of HIV that I've had the pleasure of working with throughout my career. HIV Matters is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Vive. Vive has had no input into speakers or content. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Dr. Matthew Grundy Bauer, who recently joined me on a Twitter chat for Sigma PMU Chapter. For those of you who don't know, PMU Chapter is part of the Sigma Theta Tau Nursing Society which is an inclusive organisation for nurses at all stages of their career. There are local, national and international opportunities and events and ways for you to share your work and learn from others. For those Sigma listeners, this podcast is designed for healthcare professionals who are passionate about improving outcomes for people living with HIV. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our podcast guest today, Matthew, who is a consultant in HIV and sexual health and is a visiting professor at Greenwich University.
1: So recently, as I mentioned, Matthew joined me on a Twitter chat. For those listeners who are unsure about what a Twitter chat is, they're a conversation that occurs on Twitter at a designated time and date about a certain topic. Every Twitter chat has a hashtag. The one for this chat was hashtag HIV. The hashtag allows anyone who is on the Twitter chat to be followed and even participate. Twitter chats are a great way to engage with other professionals, raise awareness about a particular topic and also get insight and understanding into different people's viewpoints. So for our Twitter chat, which was around World AIDS Day, the focus of the chat was on negotiated safety in HIV, pre-exposure, prophylaxis and treatment.
0: So, Matthew, I'm going to hand over
1: to you now for our listeners. Would you be able to explain what we mean by negotiated safety and what the term pre-exposure prophylaxis is?
2: Thank you very much, Michelle, for inviting me today. So, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis is a medication that people take which will help prevent them acquiring HIV. So these are medications that we would normally use for treatment of HIV. Uh, In particular, there's a drug which is the brand name is Truvada, which everyone probably knows it as, but there are sort of generic versions of it. And it contains two different medicines, emtricitabine and tenofovir. And there's been a number of research studies across the globe actually looking how effective PrEP is at preventing HIV in lots of different populations. Obviously, transmission is different depending on the type of sex that you're having, and they needed to work out whether, you know, what was the best regime, what was the best dosing in order for PrEP to be effective. All of the studies that have been done have concluded that PrEP is safe and effective. And it's not surprising, we know that the, the medication safe has been around for coming up 20 years now, so we know that it's really effective at treating HIV, and it has relatively few side effects. And so in terms of PrEP for gay, bisexual and other men who have sex with men, it's medication that they would take either around the time they have sex. So event-based dosing. So you would take two tablets, two to 24 hours before sex, and then a single dose, single tablet, 24 hours later, and another one 24 hours after that. And you would keep doing that for as long as you have sex. So if you're having sex over a whole weekend, you would then extend it for 48 hours after the last time you had sexual contact. The other way that you can take it is daily and you would take it every single day. You can either start with a double dose uh, and then continue taking it daily or you can take it for seven days and then be covered. That's uh, PrEP. In terms of negotiated safety, before we had PrEP, there were lots of different ways that people tried to make their sex safer. And so, you know, some of the ways that people did that was obviously by using condoms consistently. But we know from all of the research that sort of happened in the sort of 80s and 90s and early 2000s, And also from the data, people didn't like using condoms. People were inconsistent in using condoms. And my own PhD research actually looked at why HIV negative and unknown status gay men engaged in sex without condoms. And often it was about intimacy and that sort of longing to have that connection and closeness with a partner. And the condom was a barrier to that. I mean, it's a barrier method. But there was another way that people made their sex safer, which was... Um, called Negotiated Safety. It was a term coined by Susan Kippax and her team in the 1990s, and she's published several articles looking at negotiated safety. And basically, it would be where a couple would get tested for HIV and other STIs outside of their window periods, and then enter into an agreement between them about their sexual contact outside of the relationship. So that could be that they don't have sex with anybody outside the relationship, or that they were able to do certain things and not other things. And what she found is that these agreements and, and this sort of process was quite good at preventing people acquiring HIV. And also it sort of got over that barrier issue in terms of intimacy. So, you know, lots of people uh, engaged in, um, in negotiated safety. And our role as sort of healthcare professionals was sort of helping people navigate that because, you know, th- there was a lot of research, especially in the 90s, which identified that gay relationships were a source of HIV. And so, you know, people would think they were doing negotiated safety, but actually weren't. So they didn't test, or they didn't test outside the window period, or they made assumptions about each other's HIV status and, you know, and, and didn't really know. And so one of them was then be positive and then infect the other one. So th- there were some drawbacks with it, obviously. And so what what the whole Twitter chat was about was, what is the role of negotiated safety now in two thousand and twenty-one? You know what? What should we be saying, and and how should we be helping our patients navigate that field? Because some people may not want to take prep forever, and they may feel that if they're in a relationship, actually this would be an ideal opportunity to not take it. And that's what I sort of I, I sort of pose it as a Twitter chat because it's something that I haven't quite got my head around how best to support people around this whole topic.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for that really comprehensive overview. You mentioned about the role of the nurse in helping people with that negotiated safety. And a few times now you've mentioned this term window period. Just for our listeners, could you just explain a little bit more about the window period and why that's important to consider in this area of care?
2: Yeah, so every infection has a different incubation period. And it has a different period of time from when when you are exposed and catch the infection to when it's likely to show up in a test. So for infections such as gonorrhea and chlamydia, the incubation period or the window period would be about two weeks. For other infections, so HIV, it depends on what test you're using, which is another added dimension. But if you're using a fourth generation test, which looks for bit of the HIV itself, so P24 is a protein that sits on the virus itself, and also your body's response to the virus. So if you catch HIV, you seroconvert and you'll be able to take antibodies in the blood. And if you do a fourth generation test, the incubation period is, is about five. If you do a third generation test, which is the sort of older test that we used to do, which is an antibody test only, so it only looks for your body's response, the incubation period is is 12 weeks. So it does depend on what type of tests you do. And a lot of the instant tests that you get, fact most of them are actually third generation. So they're antibody tests. So those incubation periods would be three weeks. And then for things like syphilis, it's, it's uh, 90 days.
1: Thank you for that. So it sounds like, from listening to you, people need to be aware of those kind of those window periods to to safely assess the risks when we're negotiating in relationships. Yeah, so I can see clearly where the role of the nurse would come from into that kind of having that understanding about that.
2: Yeah, and have, uh, being able to like facilitate those discussions because they can be sometimes quite tricky discussions to have in the context of a relationship. And sometimes as a healthcare professional being sort of the objective outsider, actually feel quite factual about what the uh, evidence is. And then you can allow the patient and their partner to then explore it. And it isn't that one partner has the knowledge and is trying to get the other partner to do something or not do something it can be a sort of much more sort of leveling to sort of facilitate that equalness between the two of them. And despite the fact that we live in a, a, a in a country where like sex is everywhere, you've got Cosmo, position of the fortnight, you know, newspapers at the moment obviously are full of COVID, but um often it would be all these different sex scandals and who's shagging who. But in terms of having like meaningful discussions about sex, and especially meaningful discussions about sex with your partner, that is something that is a bit more tricky and often people don't do that so uh, actually that's a really important uh, role that we have as healthcare professionals in terms of like facilitating those sort of sex positive which is really important but sort of open discussions so that people are making really fully informed decisions about their health and the health of their partner.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Also, as well, prior to our Twitter chat, you kindly submitted a couple of questions ahead of time to get the audience on the Twitter chat thinking about it. One of the um, questions you asked, it was actually the first question you posed.
2: The question was about, um, uh, given the efficacy of PrEP, so according to the CDC in America, PrEP is over 99% effective at preventing HIV transmission. Uh, With all the caveats that, you know, you have to take it, you have to be negative before you take it, etc. So we know that it's highly, highly effective at preventing HIV transmission, whereas there's a level of risk associated with negotiated safety. Because it it comes down to you and your partner uh, and the fact that you've then negotiated, you've tested and you're negative and you've negotiated these sort of boundaries of your relationship in terms of conduct with other people. And so, you know, my sort of thoughts were, should we be ha- even having a discussion about negotiated safety when we ha- we know we've got something that's like highly effective at preventing HIV? And obviously we should be promoting holistic care and we should be approaching it, uh, you know, very patient-centred about what it is that they want. But I suppose sometimes patients haven't even thought about it as a concept. And uh, so my thoughts were, you know, should we even be, bringing it up a bit like withdrawal in terms of a method of, of birth control you know it, it, it is it does have an effect in terms of preventing pregnancy so according to the evidence some men leak sperm some men don't uh, and so uh, you know some men it will be very effective in terms of preventing pregnancy and other men it wouldn't be as effective so that's why we say it's not an effective method of birth control So should we be taking the same stance with negotiated safety and saying, actually, the level of risk associated with negotiated safety uh, means that we shouldn't be advocating it as a HIV prevention tool? Or should we be putting just the evidence there and allowing patients to do what they want to do? So that's where I sort of got that question from. That's sort of where I've been ruminating with uh, the whole issue of negotiated safety.
1: Yeah, and i think it was it was clear from the twitter um, chat discussions that the the participants were really keen that this was part of a holistic approach to care and that people had you no know, choice and the role of the healthcare professional in providing that choice with regards to the idea of negotiated safety how does it from a from a clinical perspective now sit within the HIV preventative strategy?
2: Well, I think this is this is I think my point. I think it it isn't, it's not it's not there, but I know that some people are using it as a way of preventing HIV. But we're just not having that discussion. I think all of the focus and quite rightly has been on PrEP because it is highly effective. And it is, it does mean that people can have sex in a way that doesn't carry any stigma and that it makes them feel quite liberated. And I've had like, especially some of the older men that are using PrEP uh, that I've worked with in clinic, it's sort of, they're like, I don't feel burdened by sex. I don't feel so worried by every sexual encounter being a potential, you know, death sentence for me. I completely underestimated. I, I remember being at Nivna conference Uh, And the late uh, Martin Fisher was talking about PrEP. So it was like, it was quite a while ago. uh, And I at the time was a little bit skeptical, I have to say, Mm. with some anxieties around people not being compliant and taking it properly. And would that open up issues with resistance? And what about other STIs? But what I'd really underestimated was that psychological impact of PrEP on the gay community. And it has been completely revolutionary. And I, I know that lots of people who are listening to this podcast would have seen It's a Sin. And it was only by watching that, that I realized how grim it was. You know, when I was back in the 80s as a young gay man coming to terms with my sexuality. And when I started my nursing career in 1989, you know, some of the, that stuff that happened to the characters are things that I saw when I worked in a district general. You know, so, and that wasn't a huge length of time ago and to where we are now, where people don't need to worry about it. And there was a, a period of time, especially in the early 2000s, where there were two groups of people. There were positive people and then there were negative people. Uh, and the negative people, obviously, some of those were positive and didn't know because they didn't test. But they their identity was negative and the, the, their identity was positive. And never the twain met. It was really tricky. And there was a lot of assumptions made about each group and whose responsibility HIV prevention was. You know, So the negative guys would say, well, they're positive. It's their responsibility to make sure that I stay negative. And the negative guys would say, well, look, they haven't got it. like They need to make sure they don't get it. Um and then that created this sort of vacuum between the two of them where actually there was a lot of potential risk uh that that could occur because each was assuming the other one was taking responsibility and then reading into sexual behaviour, well, he would use a condom if he was positive or he would use a condom if he was negative. And so these assumptions meant that people were sometimes taking risks which was sort of unnecessary. In terms of that psychological burden being lifted because of treatment as prevention and because of PrEP, it's been absolutely awesome. I'm completely blown away uh, by that. I think it's, uh, it's been absolutely phenomenal.
1: I agree with you. We often talk about the aspect of negotiated safety and a physical aspect regarding on transmission of the virus. But I think we've just touched upon something there about The emotional and psychological safety as well that's really really important and again you're thinking about scenes from it's a sin and they're definitely coming into HIV care in the early days seeing the devastation that that would cause on an emotional and psychological level for people so anything that we can add in to this cascade of prevention is he's got to be um worth doing or worth considering as well so thank you for sharing those reflections with us So in your clinical practice, we, we, there's lots of, we talked about that kind of preventative cascade, the the options that are now available for people, you know, we, we've we reflected on what happened in the 80s and 90s, and this kind of whose responsibility is it, you know, that's probably a, a hot potato that we could debate, And but I'm thinking about in clinical practice from your reflections, what's happening in, in the world at the moment?
2: Um, in 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 terms of prep, we we have discussions with everybody that would be potentially a, a risk in a significant way that would then warrant them potentially accessing prep. And I have to say, the uptake has been phenomenal um, amongst the gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men communities. I think trans communities as well have been you know very good at taking up prep. I'm not sure though how how widespread it is outside of people who aren't in the scene and on the scene and so i mean that's a, a you know probably another another point for the discussion at some point is you know should we be having these discussions with gay men in long-term relationships should we be uh you know opening it up uh, to other communities who don't necessarily access prep Uh, in the same way in numbers as the gay bisexual and other sex men who have sex with men community so Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of untapped uh, communities out there that we need to do some work with uh, Mm -hmm. to see what that appetite is for it and also how best for them to access it and take it because you know it may not be something they that people use all of the time Mm -hmm. or for their whole sexual career but it may be Uh, stuff that they use for periods of time.
1: I think you've raised some really good points about how do we access communities that may not know this information. Thinking about women as well, you know, there's a great report from Terence Higgins Trust, um, Invisible No Longer, and that kind of highlights women's access to PrEP as well. So it is really thinking about now how do we share these messages um, as professionals. I know something that was really apparent in the Twitter chat was the role of the nurse in these conversations. And we've just kind of highlighted how we we maybe need to start having some different conversations with different people. Just thinking about what are some of the barriers around talking about this subject area?
2: So I think some of the barriers would be around people's own prejudice. So I remember having a conversation with one of my medical colleagues about PrEP, and it was a very jovial, and he's actually a good friend as well as a colleague, but he's heterosexual, and he just assumed that all gay men, regardless of their relationship status, should be on PrEP and should access PrEP. And I was like, oh, really? So, you know, if you're in a long-term monogamous relationship And I know that everyone then says, how do you know your partner's being monogamous? But that applies to heterosexual couples as well. I think one of my concerns with it is that it sort of creates this concept still that gay men are risky and continue to be risky when often they're not now uh, or or not before. And obviously that's quite difficult to quantify and and I, I completely understand that. Um, and from a, a, a risk minimization, then yes, every single gay man who uh, is sexually active should probably be on PrEP. However, from a practical uh, application, and also like that would be a really tricky discussion to have if you're you know, married to your husband, you've been together for the, the donkey's years and you're not having a huge amount of sex with each other at the moment because you've got kids. Then think, oh, well, I think we should now go on PrEP. It'd be like, what? <laughs> like, what is that all about? I think people's prejudice might be definitely something, and not necessarily in a like uh, people being bad and negative, like uh, you know, gay sex is bad, but just this whole notion of risk. And I think one of the big discussions that we need to have as a, as a, as a, as a group of people, as a, you know, people that are accessing services, but also um, healthcare professionals and academics, is re, like redefining what risk is now in the era of PrEP because it is something different than it was before and I'm not quite sure where that is I'm not sure what that looks like but I think we need to start having that discussion because people often still say oh you know you need to use condoms but the reality is that Lots and lots of gay men aren't using condoms anymore. they're using crap and getting tested regularly, and that's how they're making their sex safer in the same way that lots of heterosexual women will use the pill uh, and then you know may or may not use condoms with casual partners depending on lots of different factors at the time and so I, I think we just need to really think carefully um and off I bring up you know with uh, with trainees all of the time where they talk about was your sex protected? And the question they're really asking was, did you use a condom? Mm -hmm. But actually, people protect their sex in lots of different ways, whether that's using negotiated safety, whether that's using PrEP, whether that's using condoms, whether that's not having anal sex at all. And lots of gay men still don't have anal sex because of lots of different reasons, personal reasons, risk of uh, HIV uh, and the such like. So people do lots of different things. And I think it's about thinking it of it, as people said on the Twitter chat, in, in a holistic way. And, you know, think about the patient that you've got in front of them.
1: Mm-hmm, brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for highlighting all the, the nuances around having those conversations as well. And I think just listening to there just kind of sparks lots of different, maybe unconscious biases that people may have had and not actually realised. them. I mean, you know, it, I think it's through having open and honest conversations like this that we can really think about. Oh, actually, yeah. How different is it for, you know, a heterosexual woman to have the pill and engage in condomless set. you know, is that different? You know, I think it's things that we need to kind of, those conversations we need to start having um, as well that can just help us understand maybe some of the biases that we didn't know we had. So one of the things that was kind of came through on the night, it provoked loads of different conversations. But I'm just wondering, from your point of view, what part did you enjoy most about the Twitter chat experience?
2: It's the first time I've ever done a Twitter chat, and um, there were different bits that I liked. The first is getting to an audience that I wouldn't normally have a discussion with, so that was actually really good. And the fact that it was uh, a two-way discussion. That was really lovely as well. So people were going, yeah, but what about this? And oh, I hadn't thought of that. And so, so that was really good. And I also, people were saying things that resonated with me, and were things that I w- was thinking anyway. And so to hear those things coming back to me from people who hadn't necessarily even thought about the the topic was really sort of reassuring. So I really quite liked that. But it also it wasn't really designed to do this. It didn't answer my question, because I think it's a bigger question than we can do in a podcast or a bigger question that we can do on a Twitter chat. I think it's a, a much bigger dialogue that we need to be having about the nature of risk and, and how we support patients in navigating that risk
1: yeah brilliant I think, like you, I always enjoy engaging in professional conversations with people, and it does really help you to think about the world differently and also make you realize that some of your thoughts are valid as well. The discussion that we was having. And one comment in particular gave you an idea for some future research. I was just wondering if this is something that you'd be able to share with our listeners today.
2: I think at the moment, as I said, like the, the focus has really been on PrEP and not the suite of HIV prevention tools that we've had in our armory previously. And I think we just need to maybe reconsider those, but also do that in a way that's in partnership with gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. And so I, it, it's an area that we haven't really addressed in terms of my sort of ideas around a research topic. And it's really early days formulating it in my head. But it, it, it's definitely about, you know, when would people think that they might stop using PrEP? What did that look like in the context of a long-term relationship? And in terms of the nuances around that, so you know they may not use prep with each other, but they may use prep if they have sex with somebody else, you know, you know as a threesome or or outside the relationship. How people might approach that, and also for couples who are in relationships who have used negotiated safety, what how they feel about prep, uh, and is, is it something that they would consider? Is it something they wouldn't consider? That sort of exploratory, qualitative type approach to just sort of try and unpick it a little bit my PhD was working with gay men as well and I'm really passionate about the fact that we don't do research on people we do research with them and so it would definitely be something that I would be approaching in a a very sort of uh, partnership way with with gay bisexual and other other men who have sex with men so I think it's it's really fundamental in helping design the research and also um, shape what the research questions look like
1: Thank you so much for sharing that insight for some future research to keep our eyes out for. So thank you so much for taking part in um, your reflections on the Twitter chat. Now, this is the part of the show that I get really excited about because it's time to get to know our podcast guest a bit better. Now, I've been fortunate enough to know Matthew for some time now, but I'm still going to ask him these questions as um, I would love to find out a little bit more about you. So can you tell me for the listeners something that brings you joy?
2: So, um, I have lots of things that bring me joy. I have uh, three children uh, who bring me lots of joy and also lots of stress. I think the thing that sort of is my uh, go-to place, if I want to make myself a bit happy, uh, is pottering. Uh, but not as like in throwing pots, as in going around the house, tidying bits and pieces up. I think <laughs> Hours doing that in my own little world, but I really, really enjoy it. And my husband says to me, Look, go off and potter, look, go upstairs and like tidy it up. Uh, So that's definitely something that brings me joy.
1: Oh, fabulous! The joys of pottering about, yeah, brilliant. Thank you. The simple things in life that bring us the most joy. Also, as well, can you tell me something that you've been reading um, lately a book um, or article, anything that you've read recently?
2: Yeah, so um, my oldest uh, little boy has got um, ADHD um, and he's going through some assessments at the moment. Um, and obviously those people listening to podcasts who've got um, family members who've got ADHD know like how much stress that brings to the family and also brings to uh, the child or the person that's got it. Um, so I've been reading a book called The Explosive Child by Dr. Ross W. Green, um uh and it's been it's been really helpful in helping me sort of rebalance the relationship with my son and not in a in a in a in a in a difficult way, but just trying to understand what's going on for him and also trying to preempt situations where the explosion happens so I'll give you an example like the explosions happen in the morning quite a lot um uh, and often it's around getting dressed uh and you know, the uh what the book suggests is that you know where there's a battle thing do you, do you need to do that battle uh, and actually in the morning I don't need to do that battle so I'll sit down with him and I'll get him dressed uh and it, we, we don't have that battle we don't have that explosion and everyone's happier so um it's a great book uh <laughs> to read it if you um have an explosive child
1: sounds sounds fantastic I think I'll check that one out because it sounds like there's lots of great tips in there to help support and people and relationships as, as well so thank you for that so our final question is have you read I know you've read that previous book or listened to or watched anything else recently that surprised you or made you think differently
2: so <laughs> so this is a really odd one uh, as well so um uh, my son loves uh, Operation Ouch. Uh, by the doctors Van Tolken. So Zahn Van Tolken and Chris Van Tolken, who uh, many of the people listening to this podcast may know, um, uh, they're twins and they're both doctors, medical doctors, uh, and they do these these kids' programs. Uh, and and it's, it's really good because it sort of takes you back to sort of basic anatomy and physiology. And I was listening to one with my son the other day about um, farting uh so i learned loads that i didn't know about wind
1: that sounds that sounds fabulous oh, yeah really. it was
2: really 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 funny we were, we were all laughing in the car
1: fabulous well thank you so much for today's podcast and thank you so much for joining me on the twitter chat so, we'd like to take this opportunity to thank Sigma for their collaboration and for hosting the Twist Chat to raise awareness for these important issues. If you'd like to learn more about Sigma or would be interested in getting involved in the society, you can contact the president of the chapter, Dr. Liz Westcott. Alternatively, you can contact me at michelle.croston at nottingham.ac.uk.
0: I would like to thank today's guests for joining me on HIV Matters. If you have any suggestions for guests you would like to see on the podcast or if you fancy joining me on the show, please contact me at michelle.proston at nottingham.ac.uk. If you'd like to find out more about Nivna, head over to their website at www.nivna.org. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to HIV Matters if you haven't already done so. HIV Matters is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from FEEV. Beef has had no input into speakers or content. Today's podcast was edited by Daniel Hegge. A special thank you from all the team at HIV Matters. Until next time, thank you for listening and together we can make a difference.